Good morning, everybody. Grab your Bibles and you can open them in 2 Corinthians where we have been journeying for some time. On a Sunday like this, two millennia ago, Jesus mounted on a borrowed colt on His way into Jerusalem. People have often misunderstood the nature of the animal that Jesus was riding as a sign of humility. It wasn't so much that. When Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, He was actually borrowing imagery from the ancient world that undeniably identified Him as the coming King. That's why people quoted Scripture, sang praises, laid things down in His path to open the way. The humility is not in the choice of His mount, but the fact that He was riding to His own death. Jesus will dismount and eventually endure a mockery of a trial, accused of sins He did not commit, and He's going to willingly lay His life down for me, for you. The humility is not in the mode of transportation. The humility is that He is riding into the teeth of death. He knows it full well. He did it for your sake and mine. If you don't know Jesus, this is a great Sunday to meet Him. This is a great Sunday to trust Him. Everything about His story as recorded in Scripture is absolutely true. We're not told everything about Him, but we're told everything we need to know. And we haven't been singing to an idea. We're not singing to a set of values. We're singing to a living person who kept all of His promises and fulfilled every promise, every prophecy every, ever made in this book. You can look it up for yourself. You can go to the prophet Isaiah and open scriptures that are 700 years old. You can read Psalms that are fully 1,000 years old that describe his life, even the nature of his death, the way he was buried, the kind of men he died with in detail. None of this is coincidental. It's God's orchestration of your salvation if only you will turn from sin and trust Him. I'm telling you all this on the front side because this message is directly and unapologetically for people who were already following Jesus. But if you're not, your next step, your first step is to trust Jesus with your life. He will save you. He did it for me. He's done it for untold millions. He's done it in every nation, tribe, and language where he's ever been preached. Anywhere Jesus has been known, Jesus has been loved and trusted, and He can and will save you if only you look to Him. But this morning, my message is for Christians, and I'll just tell you on the front side what it's about. It's not a very popular message. It's about you taking up the call of Jesus not only to be saved, which He gave you when you trusted Him, but also taking up His call to serve Him. Many Christians are interested in hearing that Jesus will save them. Not nearly as many are interested in the same call that comes from the same Savior saying, now that I've rescued you, you turn around and save others. And there's good reason for that. Have you ever had the experience of thinking that you would be good at something and finding out that you're actually terrible at it? Every sport I've ever played, my initial thought was, how hard could it be? And the answer was always really, really hard. 
There's a name for that. It's actually my favorite thing outside of the Bible is a psychological theory called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning and Kruger were two Ivy League psychology professors who documented their findings, which was adopted the name, uh, the, the adoptive name that has been given in popular culture is the Dunning-Kruger effect, and in layman's terms, it's simply this. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to think you would be very good at doing it. <laughs> to make it even plainer, sometimes you're too dumb to know that you're dumb. Huh? That's every frustration you've ever had with things you don't understand, whether it's building a house receiving medical care, getting your taxes done. Well, why don't they just do it? Because it's hard. You don't know it because you don't do it. If you did it, you would know how hard it is. Just hang in there. Be patient. The Dunning-Kruger effect is keenly felt when someone decides to serve Jesus. It's kind of funny. It's kind of a running joke, at least in my own mind, when somebody joins our church staff Within a week or two, they discover that it's not exactly what they thought it was going to be. To give you an old joke from seminary, I know most of you didn't go to seminary, but here's an old joke I think if you've been in church for even two years, you'll relate to. Many of us joined, went to seminary to change the world, and we're surprised to find we can't change the church bulletin. <laughs> if you've been in a church, you get that one. Once you start dealing with actual people and actual needs, it's much harder than you think. And that's a problem. You have to learn how to cope with that because I'm sincere. When Jesus calls people and saves them, he calls them in the same breath to serve him and to serve others. The reason you're drawing breath and Jesus didn't snatch you up to heaven the moment he saved you is because he has work for you to do. I don't necessarily know what that is. If we talk, I can probably give you a few ideas once I hear your story and hear your scars and your stars because that usually identifies a pattern because God doesn't waste an experience of how he's shaping a person to serve him and to serve others. But if you actually set your hand to the plow, you put your foot on the road to service, you're going to get discouraged right out of the gate you will discover that people can be ungrateful. Have you noticed? You can be, you are going to discover that people can be discouraging. You can be, you can discover that you can do your very best to no good effect. And it doesn't seem to be doing any good. And you've sincerely done everything you thought Jesus would have you do. And sincerely, with an open heart, maybe not with perfect expertise, because none of us are perfect, but you sincerely did your best, and it doesn't seem to be doing any good. So I want to talk to you today about how to serve Jesus well, no matter what people do. Because life is hard, and people can be ungrateful. But we can learn from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 what it takes to serve Jesus for a lifetime, what it takes to answer the call to service and never quit. Read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and as you do, remember what we've learned so far about the Corinthian church. This is perhaps one of the most ungrateful, backstabbing, divisive, angry, contentious, immoral churches in Christian history. The Corinthian church had to be an enormous frustration to Paul because they are spiritually gifted. They appear to be wealthy. 
They have been snatched out of a pagan setting, and there are genuine Christians there who have exhibited real life change. People who were lost in all kinds of sexual, physical, gross, moral, and more soulful, spiritual sins like pride and lying and divisiveness, all of them together have been saved. The difference is striking. They have so much potential. But do you know what potential means? It means you haven't done it. By definition, potential means it's not happening yet. And what they had used, their wealth, their intelligence, their amazingly privileged place in the ancient world to do is to fight with each other. And they're suing one another. And there's gross sexual immorality in the church. And the church apparently is not only condoning it, some of them appear to be celebrating it. And Paul has served them as he has served very few other churches. He has foregone any compensation. He has suffered physically and spiritually on their behalf. He has surrendered every privilege and made every sacrifice, and all they've done in return is question his legitimacy. They've accused him of being a grifter. It seems that they're accusing him of dipping into the offering that he's collecting for poor saints in Jerusalem. They're saying that the reason Paul's always in trouble and people don't listen to him very well is because he's a phony and God has withdrawn his blessing for him. False teachers are always orbiting Paul that have much more comfortable lifestyles, and they're being told by these false teachers, see how it's going for us? That's because God's on our side. Poor Paul's always getting his head kicked in and thrown into prison. The reason is he's a phony and God opposes him. In other words, if you set your heart to serving Jesus for life, you won't have a better teacher than Paul. And ministry, I think, should operate always in two spheres. If you have a family, that is the very first place you should serve Jesus. If you're married, your ministry should be primarily to your spouse. If you have kids or you have the influence of grandkids in your life, your ministry begins there. But it's not always easy because spouses can be ungrateful. Spouses can even be unfaithful. Kids can be wayward and break your heart. They can walk away from the values you've raised them to embrace. If you have a job, you understand that your arena and your wherever God has placed you to work, you should be a bright, shining light in that place. You should be the most dependable, kindest, most professional person there. You may not be the very best at what you do. God determines the level of skill, but the way you do it, the character, the quality, the goodness with which you offer your work to your company, to your clients, that speaks well of Christ. In other words, every single person, the moment they trust Christ, have set their foot on the road to service but as Paul found out, it's going to be harder than you think. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to tell us how to stick with it. Listen. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, what does it say there? That was unenthusiastic. You sound discouraged already, and we're just getting started. Paul said to this divisive backstabbing, litigious, immoral church who had made him make so many trips and write so many letters pleading with them as a father pleads with a kid who's breaking his heart. 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, listen, we do not lose heart. You're killing us, but we're not discouraged. That's quite a statement. Because if you keep reading the letter, and I recommend that you do, Paul's going to give you a long list of everything it's cost him to follow Jesus. You're going to hear about imprisonments and shipwrecks and betrayals and beatings. Paul, on more than one occasion, was left for dead. Paul had a hard time, I'm quite sure, getting out of bed in the morning because of all that his body had endured. Paul appears to be mostly blind. And his letters are dictated, and when he does sign, he says, look at the large letters I'm using to sign my name so you know it's me. Paul was a physical mess. Paul would never have made it as an Instagram influencer, pastor guy, hype priest in the 21st century. He was physically beaten down. He was physically ruined. But he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why? Because Paul had the right attitude. It really, truly all does start with attitude. And here's your attitude, Christian. Whether it's in marriage or ministry or family, and especially in the local church where people can so easily treat you like a servant and discourage you, you need to remember that the right attitude is this. We consider ministry a mercy. It's not only an obligation. It is not only a calling. It is a merciful calling. When Jesus saves you, he saves you by his mercy, and that same mercy continues forward, calling you into service. Do not separate them. To be called to salvation is to be called to service, and they both proceed from the same place, from God's great mercy. Look with me, please, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul wrote, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, what's it say there? Mercies, Mercies and the God of all comfort. God is the very source of mercy. God himself is mercy. It's not only part of his character, it is his character. When you approach God, you can always do so with the confidence as his child that you are speaking to mercy himself. God is the father of all mercies. He is the God of all comfort. And the same God that had mercy to save you from your sin and save you from destruction and hell, with his same mercy, with his exact same mercy flowing out of his eternally unchanging character, he calls you into service. Christians often make the mistake that God has saved them purely by his mercy, but as soon as he saves them, he turns into this taskmaster that doesn't understand them, doesn't understand their suffering, and because he doesn't understand or doesn't care, he sends them into hard places to serve him in the name of Jesus, and that's a mistake. It's all mercy. Every bit of it is mercy. The same grace that led us to Jesus compels us to serve other people in his name. That's the right attitude. Paul said, with scars on his body and trauma in his memory, everything I've ever done for Jesus is only for one reason. He has mercy on me. That's why he says in verse 1, I do not lose heart. Look in verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. 
Paul was continually being accused of being into the gospel for his own profit, for his own self-interest. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This speaks to Paul's motives. See, when you minister to people, your attitude has to be right, and you need to step forward into that time that you're going to serve other people, understanding that you're going there as an expression of God's mercy on your life that's sending you into service. But motives count for a lot. You ever had somebody do the nice thing for you and realize that it was actually their motives were rotten? Former missionary, my parents still are missionaries. They've been in Mexico now for 52 years. One thing you learn on the mission field is some people are really there for the people. Other people are there for the picture. Lean in for the picture. See us with this precious little child. Isn't this sweet? Okay, we're done. All right, here you go, kid. Here you go. Motives matter. And Paul says, our, our motive is simply this, we sincerely deliver God's word. Look at verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or, very important, to tamper with God's word. We're not changing the message one bit. We're not saying what it doesn't say, and we're not saying any less than it does say. We're delivering God's Word, His message. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, come inspect us. Look through the Scriptures with us. See if there's anything that God says that we haven't told you. See if we've changed it. See if we've twisted it. See if we've diluted it or added to it for our own sake. We're not. And the Friends, the best thing you can do to serve others is to simply tell them what God says about their life situation. There are enormous pressures on the 21st century American church to say less than God says, or to at least be quiet about some of the things that God says. And Paul says we don't do that in the sight of everyone, in the presence of God, with God looking, our conscience is clear. We're not peddling anything and we're not tampering with the message. We are simply giving people God's word. And if we really love God, we'll want other people to know what God said. He goes on. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. These next two verses, verses 3 and 4, are the heaviest in the whole passage. And they answer this criticism in the life of Paul. Everywhere Paul went, he got a reaction. With very few exceptions, the reaction was negative. A famous American evangelist said once in a moment of really humble self-reflection that he was concerned about the nature and quality of his own ministry because it had occurred to him whenever he visited a city, they gave him the key to the city. Whenever Paul visited a city, they ran him out of town trying to kill him. And he was wondering what had made the difference. Everywhere Paul went, 
he was rejected. You can read the book of Acts and check it out for yourself. Paul was a Jew and he loved the Jewish people. His heart was broken for them. He says in the book of Romans something astonishing, that he would be willing, if possible, to forfeit his own salvation if only his family, according to the flesh, the Jews, would come to Christ and know Jesus as he did. That's a big statement. I'd pass on my salvation if only you could have it. I don't know of anybody else who's ever said that or ever would. So in the book of Acts, Paul always went to the synagogue. And sometimes he was allowed to stay there and he reasoned with them Sabbath by Sabbath. But generally speaking, he caused an uproar and they ran him out of town. And once they kicked him out of the synagogue, he would always turn to the Gentiles who he once hated. And the gospel came primarily to the Gentiles because the Jews first rejected it. And the Gentiles, frankly, they didn't receive him much better. He got laughed off Mars Hill in the city of Athens. Everywhere Paul went, he spoke as a dying man to dying people with only a few people believing his message. I want you to hear his explanation of what's happening because it'll help you adjust your expectations when you open your mouth for Jesus. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. I'm asking Bible students now, who is the God of this world in Paul's language? Satan, the devil. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, the accuser, the liar, other names he goes by in Scripture. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's a big sentence. Paul, who knew the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, better than anyone he ever spoke to, said, when I open my Bible, I see it now. Jesus is the Messiah we were promised. He is the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises. When we saw Christ, we saw God Himself. Everything God is, all of His attributes, all of His character, all of His glory, was seen in the world in human form. John the Apostle explained it like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. John writes in his first letter, we saw Jesus, and we saw Him, and we heard Him, and we even touched Him. God Himself is now on earth. The light of God is shining everywhere Jesus is seen and everywhere Jesus is preached and explained. What's happening? Why isn't everybody turning to Him? Because some people have been blinded. They're spiritually blinded. Their faces are veiled and no matter how glorious the light, they just can't see it. It's like having blackout curtains in your house facing a glorious sunrise. Until you open the curtains, you'll never see the beauty of that light, no matter how real and strong it actually is. So here's the third ministry lesson. We need to adjust our expectations. Paul is explaining we're in a spiritual battle, so we know that some will reject the gospel. Expectations are everything in this life. 
If you think you're going to go out and share Jesus with other people and be celebrated for it every time you do, you'll be expecting more than Jesus got. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was criticized. Jesus was thrown out. Why did we ever get the idea that we were going to fare any better? But expectations are everything. If you think simply, truthfully, lovingly sharing the gospel with somebody else will always be well-received, it's your expectations that are out of whack. It's like joining a boxing gym and being surprised that you got punched. <laughs> You've heard, of course, of the young man who got tired of his mom and dad telling him what to do, so he joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> Thank you for your service, but it was based on terribly low and mistaken expectations. Mom and dad aren't going to hear from you for a long time, but this man right here, he's going to tell you how to do everything. It's expectations. People who expect to speak the truth of Christ should not expect to be treated better than Christ was. We're in a battle, and I want you to see why Paul remains motivated he says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are, what? Perishing. Paul's dying and he knows that everybody he talks to is dying too. He's not ashamed as a dying man to extend life to dying people. He doesn't expect that it will be easy. He doesn't expect that it will always be well received. He can remember that he himself once rejected and hated the name he now preaches. Expectations are everything. If we relied in the city of Huntington Beach, we don't thank God, but if we relied in this city in Huntington Beach on first responders who got to the scene of dying people and were repulsed by our suffering so that they walked away, we'd all die on the scene. A rescuer knows exactly what he's going into. That's why he agreed to be those who come first. He doesn't like it, but he's not repulsed by the sight of blood. The sight of pain and suffering draw his professional attention. They don't repel it. They don't shut him down. They call him to step forward with loving courage. Every Christian is a person who was once dead without Christ, who now has the beautiful, eternal, amazing life of Christ surging in you. Because when Jesus saves you, eternal life begins the moment you trust Him and continues forever. But there's people all around you who don't know Him and who don't know that truth. And your job in service to Him is just to tell them and to leave the result to Him. And if some reject it, understand it's because you're in a spiritual battle, but keep your motivation high because you are a dying person ministering to dying people. Keep your expectations right and all will be well. And then we come to verse 5, which is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. In fact, it's a verse I'd like us to learn together. It should be the heartbeat of our church. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Let's study the Bible for a second. Paul says we proclaim what? What is our proclamation? Jesus. It's not us. 
right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves. Please hear that, Christian. We're not the point. You're not the message. It's not your name that needs to be known. It's not your reputation in life that is going to be judged. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Every Christian in the world will say Jesus Christ is Lord, right? If you don't say Jesus Christ is Lord, sad news, you're not a Christian yet. The claim of Christ is that the one who rode into death really is the King of glory. That He's going to conquer death in your place and erase your sins and give you His own life. He is going to face the final enemy, which is death, which you cannot face on your own, which you will always be defeated by in your own strength. He is going to give you His life. Christians have no problem saying Jesus Christ is our Lord. That's what the enthusiasm and the singing and the giving and the serving, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord drives every bit of that. It's the next part of the verse that's a little more troublesome. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as, what's it say there? Your servants for Jesus' sake. So the right identity is this. Here's your fourth and final ministry skill. It begins with your attitude. It continues with good motives and correct expectations, but it The foundation of it all is your identity. Jesus is Lord and Christians say with Christ, because He is our Lord, we will be your servants. It's one of the most humbling verses in the entire Bible because the Corinthians treated Paul terribly. And notice the order. Because Jesus is my Lord, I can be your servant. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. I'd like you to read this with me. And if God will give me memory to do this, this is a verse we're going to occasionally review in our church and make sure that we have it in our heart and at the top of our mind because this is the heart of Christian ministry for every person who ever served Christ. I'm not talking about professional, vocational ministers such as myself. Ministry belongs to every Christian, and this attitude right here is what drives it all. Read this with me, please. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Let's read it again. I bet you've got it by memory by now. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Easy to say, you know what the test is? When somebody treats you like a servant. You'll know the truth about your submission to the Lordship of Christ the next time you try to serve somebody in the name of Jesus and they treat you like the servant you said you were. Pride rises up so quickly. And listen, this is all basic discipleship. This isn't advanced Christianity. This is what they did to our Savior. Where did we ever get the idea that we would fare better than Jesus did? Paul never, ever lost sight of the vision he had on the Damascus Road when the glory of Jesus Christ shone so brightly in his life that Paul had to surrender to Jesus. 
Paul's first question to Jesus was, who are you, Lord? And once he got that settled and Paul knew who he was going to serve, that put his relationship in order with everyone else he encountered. If Jesus is the Lord, then I am safe and secure in proclaiming not only that he is Lord, but also proclaiming and identifying myself as your servant. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller explained it years ago. Keller writes, the verdict is in. Now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because God loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people, not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up the emptiness. Many people are easily discouraged in ministry because their so-called service for others is actually trying to meet a deep insecurity in themselves. That's understandable and human. We all struggle with it. I struggle with it. The answer, the biblical answer to that is you're already safe. You're already loved. You're God's beloved child. The creator of the whole world calls you his, calls himself your father. You are brought into the family of God at the cost of the death of his son who now calls himself, according to the book of Hebrews, your own brother. All of this was given to you by the Holy Spirit who opened your eyes to your need of Jesus and gave you the very life of Jesus. You're secure. It's not going to get any better for you. Jesus has already given you himself. It's not only that he's giving you eternal life, he's giving you himself. You have him, the king of glory. You are safe and secure. You are not yet in his presence, but that's only because he has gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And if all of that is true... You can lay down any posturing and pretending and striving to impress anybody and you can proudly proclaim two things, that he's your Lord and because he's your Lord, you will be a servant. And all of this happens, Paul says in verse 6, because of something Paul continually saw. Let me back up and read verse 5 again. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Paul's referring to the moment of creation. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a big sentence. Let me simplify it for you. Paul says the reason we have this confidence, the reason we do not lose heart, the reason we keep our motives clean, the reason we keep the message straight, the reason we are free and confident not only to proclaim to you that Jesus is our Lord, but we ourselves are your servants, is because we are continually seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. God shone his light into our hearts, the same God that started the world in motion by speaking light out of darkness by the power of his own word has so moved in our lives that now we see God. We see the glory of God when we remember Jesus. We can do all this because we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How do you endure in a hard marriage for the sake of Christ? 
because you not only see your difficult spouse, you see the face of your Savior. How do you remain patient and loving and tender and sweet and balance just the right measure of grace and truth when dealing with difficult children? You can do that if you keep seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I told you last week, we become what we behold. And if you are continually beholding the face of Christ, you will have all the motivation, all the energy, all the strength, all the life you ever need to act like a servant to other people who may not thank you for it, who may reject you in the same way they rejected Christ. It will give you confidence to be open-handed with your time, open-handed with your money, open-handed with your love and your forgiveness and the grace. In other words, all the things that God gave you, you can be generous to give to others as their servant if only you will keep seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's the invitation, Christian. To be able to know where God has placed you and to serve Him with the time that you have left without losing heart, with the right motives, giving the right message, keeping the same thing based on your already secure eternal, eternal identity as you see the glory of the Father in the face of your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you serve Him for life, no matter what people do. You pray with me, please. I want to make this really, really practical. If you can't readily identify areas in which you're serving others, I'm going to invite you to step forward and make yourself available for service this morning. Because burned out Christians reduce their Christianity to just Jesus and themselves. And others get pushed out of the margins because they've disappointed us. They've been ungrateful. They've been unresponsive. They will be ungrateful. They will disappoint you. They will be unresponsive. They did that to Jesus. It doesn't matter because you belong to Him. So here's the practical part. If you, don't, if you can't readily tell me right now, here's where I'm serving Jesus. If you burned out and walked away, I'd like you to take the card that's in your seat back pocket before you leave the room. Just give me any contact information you'd like me to have and say, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really serving Christ. And we'll, we'll talk. We'll do it on your terms, on your time. But we'll figure out where Jesus is calling you to serve. If you're discouraged, if you're burned out, if you're placed yourself on the bench, make yourself available to him. I don't know where he may serve. It may be in this church. It may be outside this church. I have no idea. I don't know what he wants from you. I do know that he wants you to not lose heart. I do know he wants you to keep serving.